This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And I'm Wayne. You're Wayne June. Uh, you did the great narration for this that we've all heard, I hope. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about The Thing on the Doorstep by H.P. Lovecraft, first published in the January 1937 issue of Weird Tales. Um, I, I've, I guess I read this three or four times before I started studying this week. Uh, had everybody else read it before? I know, Wayne, you had, of course. I, yeah. I actually uh, I revisited it last night as well. So Nice. And did I haven't read to... it before. Oh, okay. Did you, did you listen to yourself, Wayne? Uh, no, I, I actually um, read the text version. Ooh. I, I you went I, old school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, had you read this before? I, I, ha- I had read this before. I, this week, this week actually, in the last couple of days, I listened to Mr. June's version. I listened to the Dark Adventure Radio Theater version. I watched the movie. I kind of went all thingy yesterday. <laughs> and Marissa, this is your first time reading, but is this your first Lovecraft story? No, I'd read um, Lovecraft stories before years okay. ago, and then I, I reread um, Shadow of Innsmouth just before. Yeah, the, so that's a good. Uh, I think that's really important to understanding at least some of the. It's not. This is not a sequel by any means, but I think it's certainly backs up a lot of the things that are going on there and i yeah. think I hadn't read it um it's easier to see this as a just uh not only is lovecraft racist he's also sexist but i don't think um the sexism in this story is actually sexism i think that's a mistake mm-hmm. um so there's like uh, a few scenes where where as uh, where um Edward says that Asenath said something like, I'm not fully fully human. I need a man's, a man's brain. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's very easy if you're, this is your first Lovecraft story or you're, uh, just not super familiar with, uh, how deep some of the writing goes in Lovecraft to assume that, oh yeah, that's just him being sexist, that, um, women aren't fully human. And I think that that might be partially intentional on Lovecraft's part. I'm not sure. Yeah, what I got from that was the through the whole mishmash of transmigrations that are going on in this story, uh, it, it seemed to me that that was the opinion of Ephraim as expressed through his possessed version of Asenath, mm-hmm. where, where she was so, uh, one of the things she was so angry about was that she had not been born a man because the man has the I don't know the more facile brain or you know some mm-hmm. right something mm-hmm. like that but but I took I took that as being uh, the opinion of the 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 ultimate possessor person uh, yeah. so I, I, I didn't I didn't it didn't even strike me that that might be you know a reflection of uh, uh, of one of Lovecraft's attitudes uh, I, I did, it just didn't occur to me and here's a here's a here's another way to interpret it that. I, I thought of that made me feel a little better about it. Um, it's mentioned and alluded in the story that the Waits had had Congress with certain supernatural horrors from Innsmouth, i.e. deep ones. So 
Asenath's body is partially deep one. I mean, she's she's. That's right. So it could be interpreted that she needs a man to assist. She needs a human, not a deep one body to fully unlock her powers. That the deep one, that the that the, the, the hybrid basically isn't isn't good enough to mm-hmm. to, to unlock things as fully as a human brain could. Indeed. So she she if if Edward hears her saying. Uh, I need to have a, uh, the. I need to be feel fully human. I can't be a woman. I can, or I can't be this woman. I can't. Uh, I need a man's brain. Man can be capitalized. Yes. Right. Um, and that's the opinion of Edward. Uh, uh, sorry, that's the opinion of Ephraim, who is actually possibly occupying. Uh, so what's so interesting is at what point in the story. Does Asenath uh, say something under her own opinion? And when is it during uh, Ephraim's occupation of her? We don't know exactly when that switch happens. We know that it happens, absolutely. Yeah, I, but- I think uh, the impression that I got was that it happened at some time in the past. And and every incidence of Asenath Derby that, that we uh, uh, see in the story here uh, or Asenath Waite, uh, is, uh, is actually her under the control of Ephraim. And, yeah. uh, uh, that's, that's the impression I got. And throughout, right. throughout the story, he wants, uh, and, and once again, this goes back to the, uh, man versus woman thing, but, uh, he in the body of Asenath wants the body of Edward because he wants a man because he, yeah. He thinks yeah. that Apple that, M man, yeah, right. That's how I read it too. I didn't. I thought that Asenath was long gone, like sh- that her right. consciousness died with Ephraim's body in the insane asylum. Yeah. Uh, uh, did no, not in the. Was it no? He didn't. He die with poison in his belly. I can't remember. Yeah, he, they, yeah, he, yeah, he was poisoned. Right, and uh, so what's so amazing about the story we're getting? I think is that it's actually it's it's it was there's a prequel to it which is the story of the daughter fighting the father right mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. at one point does she leave Innsmouth in order to try and escape her father or did did when she left Innsmouth to go to uh, Arkham was that uh, the father's already taken over and he's on the prowl for a new for a new bo- new husband who's weak-willed enough that she can t- he can take over Oh, that's right. Because Ephraim, he, oh yeah, he didn't die until she was, uh, she was in school, right? Or she that's was, right. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So there, there's this uh, the the escape that uh, Edward's trying to get from his own wife is paralleled by the escape of the daughter from the father, mm-hmm. and thinking about how. Uh, how Edward is trapped in that corpse. Um, oh yeah. Ooh. But the thing itself, then that makes me think that Asenath is trapped, in, was trapped in, and obviously trapped in the corpse of her own father as well. Right. And, 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 and died in the asylum. Right. And so there's so many amazing re- resonances that, um, that happen when you start thinking about, uh, you know, whether this is a sexist story or not, I, I have a feeling it's zero percent sexist. Um, in fact, there's a ton of sympathy going to 
Asenath as having, you know, just been another victim of this monster father. Uh, and when I think about her being, I think about Edward being locked up in the upper room of the, of the, of the, what's it, Crown and Shield house? Yep, Crown and Shield. Right? Um, locked up in that upper room while his wife st- steals his body and drives off in the car. Right? Drives off to Maine. <laughs> Uh, goes down the 6,000 steps, uh, communes with some shagots, and then loses control of Edward's body. And, and he's like stuck out in the middle of nowhere, uh, being mind blasted by <laughs> in a darkest dungeon. By, yeah. by <laughs> um, for you. yeah, it's uh, it's frightening,ly horrible to see, see that when uh, that note is written, right, and we get the uh, what is re- should be really obvious, I think. By by the time we get to the end, there's actually an extra layer of thinking back that this isn't that that resonance of it's going it's going to go on and on and on and that's right in the text right yep. right um, it must be stopped uh, when Edward uh, sorry when Daniel goes to uh, shoot uh, Asenath slash Ephraim um, that that is a uh, something that must be done and so it goes all the way back to that great opening to opening line it is true that i have sent six bullets to the head of my best friend and yet i hope to show by this statement that i am not his murderer yep um i am his avenger right Mm -hmm. i but more importantly i stopped a horrible uh uh survival that's the word that comes up a couple of times it's a survival um, the other thing that's interesting about going to the Innsmouth connection mm-hmm. is that um, if we, uh, yeah, Marissa, you just reread. No, Paul, yeah, who, who reread? Yeah, I reread Innsmouth. as well. Okay, so everybody knows Innsmouth well enough. Yeah. Um, what we know about if you've got deep one blood in you, eventually you grow gills, right? You start uh, thinking about spawning or whatever, going to the sea, <laughs> yep. um, swimming down, but you get to live forever. So. Well, why is why is Ephraim so desperate for immortality? Because um, he he what is he fully human as well? Yes. So he can't have what his daughter could have. Right. But but once he's in his daughter's body, he doesn't want to live yeah. immortally he, as he wants as, the human body as a deep one to see. He wants the human body. Right. So. This what's so interesting is that it's it's you know if everybody around you gets to be mortal, and you don't, it almost gives some sympathy to Ephraim. Yeah, because he's the one left out. He's he's the one that ages while the rest while his descendants uh, go to live forever in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And, and his wife, for I, that matter. Yeah. I know it would piss me off if I if I if I wasn't <laughs> immortal. So. Yeah, everybody yeah, else gets your wife and daughter. No. <laughs> But also, you know, it's not the kind of immortal we're looking for, right? You know. Yeah, because yeah, what, he he can be immortal just in a different way. Yeah, and then, then that that got me to thinking about how, um, and I think this is really fun um, about thinking about how how I would like it if uh, I I was told about this technology being out there, right? This basically, you 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 cast the right spells. And uh, it, it should this be, you know, we should, as Edward says, go to the library 
and burn the Necronomicon? Mm-hmm. Or is it just that it's because Ephraim's such an asshole um, that because today, right, like Lovecraft wouldn't think about it this way. But today there's lots of people who want to be a different gender. Wouldn't it be really great if you could just like find somebody on Craigslist? Uh, I don't feel like I'm the right gender. I'm in the wrong body. You want to switch? <laughs> Just switch meat bodies. <laughs> wow! Right, so, like, boy, that, that, that would lend a whole whole new aspect to uh, to uh, uh, social networking. You know, social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Body book, perhaps. Oh my god! And imagine all the new weird sex fetishes that would <laughs> like people well, just switching right. bodies and bodies and bodies. But also, like you know, it would solve a lot because you don't have to do it permanently at first, right? Exactly. You could test it out and see how you like it. Maybe, maybe you, you know, you're gonna regret having the surgery. Yeah, uh, and it's exactly where that movie went, right? That um, I didn't get to watch the whole thing, but the movie you sent us, uh-huh. um, straight. I think quite early on went to a sex scene where. As an right. is, <laughs> check this out. <laughs> Let's yeah. just switch bodies in the middle of this. I th- I think that that's totally implied by the story. Uh-huh. It's just Lovecraft has no interest in showing it. Right. Um. Uh, but I yeah. I, that was one of the uh, the very first thing that happens in the movie is you know there's a sex going on, and I was thinking yeah that well that's because it's a modern movie, mm-hmm. but. Um, you guys have now all seen the the Providence adaptation, and that is, to- I mean, that's the thing that Edward marries Asenath, and they go on honeymoon to Innsmouth, right? That is not the greatest honeymoon location. <laughs> when you go there, um, uh, I'm assuming something like that happens in the film. Uh, sorry, in, in the, the in the in the story, it's just yeah. off screen. Yeah. Yeah, and of course he couldn't really talk about it in those times, but yeah, I think it is implied. But he, yeah, he, that, that, that's, you know, that's he, especially uh, creepy if if you go with my theory that uh, uh, that was Ephraim all along in there, you know. Well, <laughs> I, I think it is Ephraim at that point mm-hmm. because because uh, I think that it's sometime after. Uh, I think what she's doing in when she moves to uh, Arkham is she's trying to escape her father's influence. Um, just as Edward tries to escape uh, Asenath's or Ephraim's, but uh, at some like she she is a rival to her father at some point in the story, and then she becomes her her father, and then Edward ends up having sex with his father-in-law. This is what I'm saying. This is <laughs> right? exactly what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, it takes a while for Edward to realize that Asenath is is Ephraim. And so that's almost that was part of the creeping horror. Like, oh, my God, my wife is actually my father-in-law. <laughs> yeah, it's just... That's it's, a thought you never want to have. <laughs> that's a thought you never want to have. But Edward finally figures out. It's like, oh, God, this is this is horrible. This is a really... As, as far as Lovecraft goes, this is a much more character-focused, intimate story of these relationships than the more cosmic horror that you normally get. And I think maybe that's why people react to this story sometimes badly. I mean, mm. I mean, yeah. we get a, a mention of Shoggoths and, 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 and an allusion to Innsmouth and that's about, and then you have this body switching, but that's about it. I mean, there's no, uh, I mean, you don't have Narla Hotep uh, hanging around waiting to go through. I mean, the movie goes, goes oh yeah we're gonna bring 
and I, I actually mentioned this now, so I'm going to go off on a tangent. So the movie does try to tie into greater cosmic things with, oh yeah, Ephraim's trying to be the gate for Yog Saga, right. and Yog Saga's going to bring the old ones back, and that's why he has to be stopped. But the the story, qua story, doesn't has, doesn't deal with that at all. It doesn't need to. It this is really just a personal story of these of these characters and this bloodline and this body hopping through time. I mean, the movie does kind of imply like, oh yeah, and show a version of events where, oh yeah, Daniel just was jealous of Edward and he killed everyone. And you could, except for the fact that the, the, the rotting body is, uh, Asenath, you could actually almost see it that way as a story of, of, uh, his insanity, of Daniel's insanity. Yeah. And his jealousy. Yeah, well, but that's well well done in the audio drama too, yeah. right? They have the framing device. Right, of, right of the cop, yes. Of uh yeah, she's the assistant oh, yeah, yeah, attorney yeah. who's trying to uh you know and I, I, I've seen that in there's another audio drama by Julie Hoverson that does the same thing uh, well before that that modern one. It's 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 very easy to frame this story as as uh, not a super Cthulhu mythos sort of base, but actually, I mean, there's there's quite a bit in there, mm-hmm. but be, it's because Daniel's the the, the storyteller, um, or Dan is the storyteller. He's so far from the events that are happening. He's he's a family friend of somebody who's been you know uh, down the darkest dungeon, and he's yeah. like just trying to solve the solve the issue mm-hmm. by. That's how I felt that it was being a good friend. Yeah. And I felt like it was all, it was actually there. It's just all sort of like below the surface. Exactly. It's not really that visible, but especially when you reread the story, it's like, oh yeah, it's all, it's all so right that, there. That's, I, I think that the, yeah, the film is actually, it's not that bad um, considering how low budget is, how the acting doesn't, what, you know, isn't, sorry. isn't great. What was the name of the film? Because there's a couple, right? So the- Okay, so yeah, the, this is the one. It's called Strange Eons, The Thing on oh, the yeah. Doorstep. I think it's from 2005. Mm-hmm. There was also a 2003 one, which uh, I, doesn't seem to be available anywhere. And there's a 2014 one, uh, which might be available somewhere, but not anywhere I could find. Um, there's also a short film, part of an anthology. There's all sorts of little things here and there but uh this is well a well um adapted and c- anthologized and collected uh story so i'm mm-hmm. sorry to say i personally uh, missed the fact that you actually sent me a movie but uh, because <laughs> because one of the one of the things i've always had uh, regrets about is that uh, lovecraft has not really fared well historically in terms of having um uh, film adaptations uh, yeah. and, and it would just, uh, I mean, uh, this story in particular, I think would lend itself so well, uh, if, uh, you know, someone with, uh, with, with the budget and the vision and the understanding of Lovecraft were to take this story on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, mm-hmm. for yeah. example, which, uh, which w- we've, uh, were teased with a while back. Yeah. Um, exactly. I, I think that would be, I think that would be outstanding. Well, I, I got to tell you that the, the, if if it's a super faithful version, um, and the film is not super faithful, I think what liberties it takes are actually pretty good. Uh, I'd like to see it set in a period. It's not set in a period. I'd like to see it, um, you know, with a better acting, better sets, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing. It doesn't have that. 
But what it does have, and I think it was kind of cool. Uh, one of the things it drops that I didn't like, though, first was uh, it drops the. Oh yep. yeah, the knocking. Yep. Yeah, I, I, as the as, as, three and two knock, which is so essential to the narr- uh, to the reader. You know, saying, "Okay, this is Asenath. This isn't Asenath, right?" Right. Um, uh, at least in the beginnings of scenes, you can tell who's who. Yeah, oh, and, and that definitely ties in in at the you know the the denouement of the whole story where Absolutely. where Glub 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 shows up on the doorstep <laughs> and that and uses that knock you know it's him you know it's yeah. three gloves and two and two bubbles <laughs> <laughs> you know that's what he was trying on the phone it didn't work oh that's so creepy <laughs> oh man um yes I somebody I heard on some podcast said that was the the scariest use of glub glub ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, in the film, one of the things I think that they did that was kind of cool uh, is that the Daniel character is a skeptic. Um, he actually was previously uh, like an assistant uh, or a teaching assistant or some sort of research assistant to, uh, to Ephraim. And, uh, Asenath is comes to the university, falls in love with his his student. Daniel is now instead of being a, a architect, uh, sort of peripheral, he's more central. He's a university prof who uh, teaches ancient religions, right? So the thing that that Asenath came to study is what he's teaching, and so there's a a recurring motif that instead of the tap tap, um, it's her Asenath actually Ephraim telling um, telling Daniel that uh, that Ephraim thought he was a mediocre mind Tire- or something. tirelessly mediocre tirelessly mediocre right <laughs> um, and so that tirelessly mediocre becomes the 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 three and two yeah for the it. film yeah and then the final scene I think is it's a brilliant way of sort of bringing the horror more personally because see I think if this was a faithful adaptation it would be a pretty boring film because it's mostly about a guy who's sitting in cars or in sitting rooms listening to his friend go crazy and then you know picking him up at the sheriff's station driving him home and then there's a final scene where he shoots his friend in the head um so it'd be pretty boring film up to that point but what they do in the film is is they make it personal so that um the reason he is not occupied the reason daniel uh, daniel upton's not occupied by asenath as a man right immediately is because he's uh he's too skeptical um he's doesn't have hypnotic ability oh, right yeah and and so that edward um being more susceptible more interested in in the uh the uh, uh, you know but he's a believer in the occult um, he falls under the sway in this exact same way that you would expect. This so interesting is going on. What's going on in the film and and the the story, and every adaptation is is we're told that he that Ephraim needs a weak willed person with a strong mind, which yeah. doesn't make or a strong brain, right? Which yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because at the end Edward finds the will. To do something that even Ephraim couldn't do, which is to take basically a zombie blubbering corpse out of the basement where it's buried, you know, 
go upstairs, make a phone call. Okay, that didn't work. <laughs> Write a note, get a taxi, head across town. I do love that whole sequence. Climb up the steps, <laughs> knock, 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 or ring the bell yeah. uh, the, the right way, and then you know, hand a, just, a note stuck to the end of a pencil. That's that, pretty yeah. strong will. That is strong wills. I guess yeah. I kind of read that as like throughout all the years that he spent suffering this, like he's just he's gone through some shit. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. He's become a stronger person. Well, yeah, I, he's got a strong will at least. Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, he's not. It's it's pretty it's pretty impressive. So that final scene in the film, uh, where the revelation is that uh, Ephraim has won, ra- rather than in the story here where we've got. Uh, you know, basically, I think everything's going to be good unless you think that uh, they're not going to burn that corpse, right? Um, unless you think that the, the, the authorities aren't going to listen to this statement. And, uh, and so we're, we're sort of left with a feeling that, you know, oh, good, it was a good thing he shot him and maybe it's done now. Mm-hmm. But in the film, uh, that the son of Daniel, who is a peripheral character in uh, even the audio drama where he gets some words, right? He's a basically non-existent character in the, in the story proper, but he's mentioned. He's named actually Edward as well. He gets occupied by Asenath or Ephraim. Ephraim yeah. Oh, wow. And he's dragged off, kicking and screaming to prison slash uh, the sanitarium where he knows that now... He hasn't stopped the the horror. The survival continues, and the son, his own son, is now occupied by the monster because the son whispers in the ear of the father tirelessly. What is that? Tirelessly, tirelessly. mediocre. Yeah, it's like, oh my right. god, <laughs> no! Oh wow! It's not well. Like that's a pretty well done uh, adaptation, I think. Yeah, nice, mm-hmm. nice little twist. Yeah, ultimately, very well done. What, um, one thing about the adaptation, I branch off to more uh, Lovecraft-based stuff. But the, 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 the adaptation tries to uh, rationalize the magic and stuff as science that mm-hmm. hasn't understand with mathematics. And it's like, it's all math. And that kind of reminds me of, uh, have any of you read the uh, Charlie Strauss laundry first novels? No, I did read his one that has uh, Shoggoths as basically nuclear weapons. Um, that one's uh, set partially on Mars. It's really great. Yeah. Yep. Um, sh- uh, what's it's not Shoggoths in Bloom. That's different. no, no. That's Elizabeth Bear. Um, yeah. It might be a Colder War. Um, a Colder War. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but after he wrote a Cold War, he he's come up with this uh, urban fantasy world where there's all these other dimensions and mathematics basically is the key to reaching Lovecraftian sorts of beings. And there's the laundry is basically kind of like a MI6 for stopping this sort of thing. And it basically follows this, the, the main character, Bob Howard, who knows about this sort of stuff and gets deeper and deeper as he's trying to basically stop these entities from breaking into the universe. It's a, it's a, it's a great series and it goes down to again, mathematics and Mathematics basically being the key to unlocking dimensions. When I was seeing, seeing this movie and he was showing the mathematical equations, I immediately thought of Charles Strauss' Longiverse files as being, yeah, taking that same idea. Yeah, the 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 the, the horrors at the bottom of the Mandelbrot set as mm-hmm. being the gate yeah. to Yogg Sagoth <laughs> and never, all the rest just waiting there for 
enough powerful uh, mathematics to uh, open up the gate. Kind of creepy. I, th- I think that that's directly taken out of the stories. I, I, I don't think Lovecraft actually – like the closest it comes is I guess Dreams in the Witch House where you literally got a witch and yeah. like baby sacrifice and all that stuff. Um, but the Necronomicon is is more like uh, it, it is a book of sort of science. It's just the ma- science magic, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, con- it was considered magic when probably when it was written, but we're smarter than that now, and we can see that it's you know uh, uh, it, it is uh, non-Euclidean geometry and mathematics and 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 weird science that uh, yeah, it's that, quantum really stuff, yeah. right? Exactly, right? It's it's like uh, looking at, uh, I mean, Lovecraft ultimately is a science fiction writer at, at bottom. So even when he's got, you know, witches and spells, I'm, uh, what does um, Edward say? He says, I have some spells against her to keep her. Yeah. Um, turns out that that's actually just a gun or no, no, not a gun, a, a candlestick. Yeah. Which he <laughs> hit her on the back of the head with, look, I got a spell. <laughs> yeah, that's Summon cannons. Uh-huh. I, I I thought the touch in the movie of changing it to having a gun and having everybody having been shot is a, a nice change and a through line mm-hmm. to the idea that yeah Daniel's been the one killing everybody and so th- I, I I like that change from the story. It, it's it's a, it's a neater sort of uh, yeah it's the same gun sort of thing. So it, it mm-hmm. makes it more of a murder mystery. Yeah, it makes it a cha- a chain as well. Yeah. Um, did you guys see late last night? I sent you. Uh, I tweeted. Um, some images from the the tarot tarot deck. Yes, the Rider Waite tarot deck. Right. Know, so, so um, everybody knows the tarot deck, and the most common set is a set uh, made in the U.S. or maybe in the U.K. The but it was actually made for somebody. A group that's mentioned in this story. That's the amazing part. Um, do you remember uh, there was a somewhere in New York? There's a cult leader mentioned. Uh, who uh, had mo- recently moved in from England? Mm-mm. Yeah, you don't remember that? Yeah, the, it's the yeah, it's the Order of the Golden Dawn. Right, the Order of the Golden Dawn. Right, which is a um, uh, a period um, R- real life. Yeah, Alistair Crowley. real life cult with Aleister Crowley as the cult leader. Um, this, I believe, the tarot deck, the Rider uh, Wait or Wait Smith tarot deck is actually um was contemporary to the story uh actually precedes it by a bit and of course the guy's name is wait but the changes that were made in in that for that version include all sorts of really interesting symbol symbology that uh is either in earlier ones or just not if it's in it it's just not as made so explicit so one of the 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 two cards i sent you both had in common was the infinity symbol mm-hmm. above uh, both of the the magician and uh, uh, strength cards, uh-huh. um, and the woman has strength with the infinity symbol over her head. She's usually like tearing the mo- mouth open of a lion, right? And it's always a male lion. Um, and the magician ha- has he's in a garden. He's got uh, all of the the suits in the tarot deck. Uh, beside him, he's got the the cups, the swords, the wands, and the um, and the pentacle pentacles. So, uh, what's so interesting is that I don't know 
if Lovecraft consciously put it in there. But given that it's, it obliquely references the deck that was used by these this esoteric order of reality, right? A real group. Yeah. Instead of the esoteric order of Dagon, we've got an actual modern magical society that thinks that they're doing something, Aleister Crowley and at, at all. Huh. Um, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess we do have to uh, dig into the research and see when his first mention of weight was. Uh, right, because it's not in this story, right? It's in Dunwich Horror as well. Uh, um, yeah, I think the, I think it is. The uh, the uh, the Wikipedia page on Thing of the Orsep says, according to Robert M. Price, the model for weight was real-world occultist Arthur Edward Waite, best known for the Rider Waite tarot deck. Robert M. Price go. is a... Uh, Theologian and writer, he's basically a uh, expert. He, he in, does expert. the Bible and, yeah, and, and Lovecraft. Lovecraft. So yeah, so he says it is. If you believe him, then yeah, he, then then Lovecraft totally uh, totally was channeling that. Hmm. Uh, it makes sense uh, given how. Uh, so when I I did a drawing earlier this week, I was just like, you know, I do a drawing while I'm listening to the story or in class with students who are doing some assignment. I'm busy. Doing it, and as I was doing the doorstep, I realized the two O's just look kind of boring. So I thought, oh, I'll make it an infinity symbol because that going on and on and on, um, you know, n- never dying, living forever. That's mentioned that you know a, a survival that keeps going. Mm-hmm. I'll just make it an infinity symbol. That looks cool. <laughs> and then, and then I'm looking just uh, at uh, the weight and uh, the, and it just comes up. Yeah, it's right there. It, and by the way, the magician also has a belt uh, in that tarot deck. His belt is an Ouroboros belt, you know, a snake eating itself. Yeah, uh, symbol yeah. symbol of infinity and power, another yeah. symbol of infinity, right? Um, Ew, yeah, and, that has a kind of uh, that matches with him basically like consuming his own daughter as well, like his own totally. Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, and even beyond that, what's so cool is um, Lovecraft is super smart, right? He gives all these these Puritan exiles, uh, old families, um, biblical names, you know, like uh, Ephraim and uh, Asenath. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the story where they came from, a- Asenath and Ephraim are in the Bible, but they're in the Bible together. Um, in the case of Ephraim, uh, to, in the in the story proper, the thing in the doorstep, Ephraim precedes Asenath, but in the uh, Bible, Asenath's son is Ephraim. Oh, really? Yeah, and yeah. so it's it's like a, again a circle, and it makes you start thinking. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this did it begin with the Ephraim in this story, or is it a survival from a previous, uh, you know, even biblical era? Wow. Oh, that's creepy. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And then, because, yeah, and I wondered if there was any, I don't know if anyone's talked about uh, this, if there's any link to the story of the Shadow Out of Time as well, because... Totally. That species is jumping minds and bodies and... You know, Philip K. Dick has his themes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got a whole bunch of themes. He likes to show boobs. He likes to have androids. <laughs> he likes to think about uh, about boobs. about you know uh, reality being a, a veil uh, that is easily replaced with like little post-it notes that say chair or yeah. highway. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Um, these uh, those themes that appear in in Dick uh, 
have parallels in Lovecraft. And the more you start looking at it, the more you can see that almost everything he touches has this theme. One of my fa- my my personal favorite Lovecraft stories um, is The Tomb, which is one of his first stories uh, written just after he's a teenager, I believe. Um, and that's a story, uh, Mr. Jim, uh, Mr. Wayne June, did you, uh, do you remember this plot for uh, the tomb? I do. Uh, doesn't he, uh, uh, in, in seeking for some sort of, uh, outlet for his, uh, his, uh, loneliness and, and imagination, he starts spending time in the graveyard. Yeah. His own, his own ancestors tomb. He finds it in the woods. He, he keeps trying to get in it, but it's locked. And eventually, in a dream, uh, he he's told where the key is hidden. He finds it in, like, the attic under a floorboard or something. And then he goes to the tomb, and he just lays down in it, right? Because it's, it's so natural to... He used to sleep outside of the tomb because it was just so natural. And then he goes into the tomb, and he just lays down. And then <laughs> it has a kind of similar setup in that, to this story in that it begins and ends in a sanitarium where he is uh, able to recall events of uh, his ancestor who um, basically took occupation of, of the main character's body. Dudley Jarvis, I think is his, mm. his, his name. And uh, as you pointed out, Marissa, uh, the shadow of time, it's the same thing. Somebody's getting body swapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The great race of Yes. Yeah. Right? Is it's, it's a theme that recurs and recurs and recurs. Um, Lovecraft himself said, you know, I feel like I was born in the wrong time. Right? Um, he really feels like a lot of sympathy and uh, wants to have been a 17th century gentleman. Um, but he, I, I don't think he physically found that key anywhere. No. <laughs> no. But he found it in stories. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But, I remember uh, one point you and I having a conversation about that story, and uh, you were <laughs> you you're pretty adamant about defending uh, that character. Like, uh, what's wrong oh, with yeah. what's wrong with going on sleeping in the graveyard? So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. Actually, the, uh, on my phone, uh, my you know lock screen. Yeah, it it is my Lego model of the tomb. It's the one I've made like the most Lego models of. I've <laughs> sort of rebuilt it like five or six times. Wow! Oh. <laughs> Every time I get a new Lego piece, like I found a Lego key, I I like oh I'm gonna add that. I have to rebuild the whole scene. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, yes, I'm. You obsessed. have an affinity for the tombs. Absolutely. Yeah. The more you learn about Jesse, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh, is now the time we discuss the uh, the Providence adaptation? Yeah, I think now it's time we we uh, now it's providential to, to discuss Providence. All right, <laughs> all right. So uh, Providence is a, a twelve issue series. Uh, it's I think on the issue ten is coming out soon, or maybe it just came out. Yeah, it's um, running right by there. Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs. Burroughs is the artist. Moore is the author. Uh, from Avatar Press, and it is uh, dealing with Lovecraft um, uh, in the period, but with a modern, um, sophisticated uh, sort of eye. Um, so the racism, the sexism, the uh, the hidden sexuality um, is all dealt with, and 
I, I, as I found in a number of the issues, but I think this one possibly amongst the most powerful in comics I've ever read, it's physically turning the pages and seeing what, what, how the story plays out is it's traumatic in the same way that, uh, all, you know, like reading that, uh, third paragraph makes Dan pass out <laughs> and combined with the smell of the thing that just handed it to him. Um, I think it's, it's almost just, uh, it's incredibly difficult to read this comic because it's so disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so dealing with the stuff that's in the, in the book that's just hidden by the fact that, you know, Lovecraft doesn't go there. Yeah. He does go there. He just doesn't. Yeah. The, the, the subtext show. becomes text in the Alan Moore adaptation. Yeah. I think that's why this story is so um, moving and intense because there's so much not said, but the more you think about it, the more horrifying it gets. Mm-hmm. Like, um, apart from all the experiences of the characters that, that you don't see, there's also, you know, as an S story, the little child who's locked in the man's body, the weird experiences that, uh, uh, what's his name? Ed, Edward must've been having. Mm-hmm. It's just so creepy. It's, um, it's, it's also really interesting that lost time thing that happens to, uh, the narrator in the shadow out of Innsmouth, right? Yeah. Um, that happens to, uh, to our protagonist, uh, Robert Black in the comic book adaptation. He, he loses time. And in fact, um, if you skip to the final panel after he's bought a raincoat with, with, uh, there's, there's a, I mean, uh, some of it's just funny. Um, uh, she's in the final scene before they basically she starts stripping and they have sex. Um, she's standing on the doorstep, um, and he has just finished buying a raincoat, right? Mm-hmm. And then you you go past the the traumatic sex. Oh well, I guess it's not a, it's a rape scene. Um, past the rape scene, and then he leaves the house, starts running down the street, uh, crosses the bridge. You know, in a rainstorm, turns back to see a car that has just passed him. And who's in the car? It's him. Ah. It's like that's and notice he's he's not driving. It's that's another callback to to the fact that Edward is, you know, he doesn't drive. That I think it's very easy to miss, but the in the in the proper story proper in the thing in the doorstep, the the call from uh, where it's somewhere in Maine. Um, I can't. Remember. It starts with a C. Um, there's a small, a very very small town. I looked it up. It has like ten ten citizens in it. Hmm. It's completely off the grid. Um, a, a very small town in in Woodland, Maine, northern Maine. Um, where he has just been arrested by the local marshal, not sheriff, but marshal, um, thrown in prison and then or jail, and then made a phone call mm-hmm. to Daniel to come pick him up. Right, <laughs> couple of couple of uh, more than a couple hours drive away. Um, this is uh, a pivotal scene on the return trip, uh, but. What was he doing there? He was like visiting, communing with the Shagas, right? Right. And on that return trip, 
he he suddenly switches and wordlessly insists that he's going to drive the car the rest of the way. Right. Back. She uh, she regains control of, of the uh, of right. the vessel. It, it, it it's like now that he's back in range and the weather's better. <laughs> um, uh, it's it, it, one of the things that that the Asenath uh, and um, her father both have power over is the weather. Right, right, because it's mentioned mentioned oh, yeah. that Ephraim could braise storms and stuff like That's that. That's right. Yeah. And and so she she could she could control dogs, but she could also she could uh, they said predict it was her just having an uncanny predictability of when it's going to have a thunderstorm, but actually um no. Right. And so that seeing him in the thunderstorm uh there's so much going on, you know, like even like down to the details, like that house, it has a gambrel roof, the architecture, right? That's Lovecraft, the architect, uh, wannabe, the architect appreciator, mm-hmm. um, sort of just experiencing the horror of what Lovecraft has actually written is another kind of horror, mm-hmm. right? It's not all just adjectives. It's the hidden so I I think you know everybody can point to the end and say yeah ooh wow it was a monster it was the crushed skull of you know Asenath and it was you know like well but that's not the end of the story that's just the end of the story right that's not the if you start thinking about how deep this goes it goes incredibly yeah deep. if anything that's that's really the beginning of the story I mean I, it I, is. I, I can picture Lovecraft having that be the idea that gives birth to the story uh, i believe that, i believe that, that's right you know i could just imagine him because uh you know uh, out of all the horrible uh i don't know um uh, teenage things <laughs> uh that he's come up with uh certainly uh waking up in a decomposed body would be a pretty you know that's a ooh, what a cool idea you know that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I think that's where he started uh but uh but as you said there's, a, there's just a lot more to it than that and uh you guys have all said that you know i mean uh, you could take it in a million different directions because the seeds uh, are, are all there mm-hmm. uh you know for for, for 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 taking the story just about anywhere it's it's uh it is deep it's great um, so uh, the uh, uh, the Wikipedia entry cites two things um, that that Lovecraft was uh, supposed to have been inspired by. One is a novel by Barry Payne, who uh, is a sort of a an early weird tales writer. Well, he wrote weird tales, but not for weird tales. Um, and that was a book called An Exchange of Souls from 1911. Uh-huh. Had you ever heard and that before? Never heard of it um, other than in this Wikipedia. I, I've heard of Barry Payne. I've read some of his stuff, and it is weird and good. But I hadn't heard of this novel. There's another one, H.B. Uh, Drake's The Remedy, also known as The Shadowy Thing from 1925. But uh, well before that is uh, a story that I don't know that Lovecraft wrote, but it doesn't matter because it's so cool uh, that even if he didn't read it, it's just great minds think alike. There's a story called The Parasite. It's a novelette or novella by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from 1894-1895 that is about a uh, woman who has the ability to project herself into the mind of people. She finds this uh, university kid 
who um, is the actually the narrator who's about to get married to someone else, um, and she sets her sights on him and starts controlling his mind. He, he's a willing he's willing like like um, like uh, uh, Edward is to learn from. You know, one of the th- reasons Edward likes Asenath is because she likes him, but also because she has magical powers that he can, he wants to study, right? He's a devotee of subterranean magic, yep. whatever that means. <laughs> um, she, too, is a devotee of subterranean magic. They have something in common. Well, in, in the original, uh, sorry, in the Parasite by Conan Doyle, she is a hypnotist with the power to transfer her consciousness, like at, at a party, as shown in the movie, yeah. right? Um, you can see yourself in someone else's body. You can see what you look like, this sort of out-of-body experience. And she she uses this, she's from uh, Trinidad, by the way, probably uh, supposed to be at least mostly white, so uh, more of a witch than like a voodoo woman. Right. But in the story, she... Um, is sometimes described as a psychic vampire story, but she continuously uh, projects herself into his body, even after he sort of is no longer interested in her because she's becoming a little bit obsessive with him and she's older and he doesn't like that. He wants to marry his new girlfriend or his girlfriend. Um, but he, uh, he in rejecting her, uh, finds himself um, almost arrested for bank robbery. Because she has projected himself into, uh, she is projecting himself into him, and almost got him arrested for bank robbery. Oh, wow. um, and then the final scene in that story, which is an incredibly powerful uh, <clears throat> thing, is is uh, he wakes up um, in a waiting room for a doctor's office, holding a, a vial of acid. Waiting for his wife to or his uh, girlfriend to come out or intended to come out of the doctor's office where he's gonna about to splash her in the face. Nice. Oh. Right? Wow! It's incre- like it was gonna be revenge. And the only reason uh, he didn't do that is because uh, the Asenath uh, analog in that story had just died. Oh wow! Clever. So it's 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 a it's a basically a very eerie uh parallel to this story without the final transference right, right. yeah that, that was kind of a that was kind of a trope that uh was popular at at that time mm-hmm. uh you know besides the fact that uh, you know there's a big interest in uh, uh spiritualism and seances and the like there was also uh, it seems to me reference cropped up quite often uh about you know mesmerism and animal magnetism and hypnotism that that yep. type of thing uh it kind of reminds me I, I i don't remember the story in detail but i read a post story at one time uh the case of uh, monsieur valdemar does that mm-hmm. ring a yeah. bell yeah uh, isn't there's there's some sort of uh uh thing where they were able to hypnotize him back from the dead or something he the, he was hypnotized at the point of death Right? right, and then they could talk to him while he was in that state, and then when the hypnotism was broken, he collapsed like a pile of jelly on the doorstep. <laughs> I wonder if he glub glubbed. He totally <laughs> glub glubbed. He totally glub glubbed, and uh, uh, that that is a very good connection. Uh, by the way, that uh, the note 
written by the guy who's turning into a puddle of jelly. Um, that's not uh, just this Lovecraft story either. There's also the cool story called Cool Air, which yes, uh, is, is a terrific story about a guy who's been dead for years. Um, but because his air conditioner broke, he can't, uh, and his ammonia baths and uh, whatever kind of bass he is to keep the mold from growing. Right? Yeah. One, of, one of my, um, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Absolutely. Oh man. Super creepy. By the way, that's, that's the first issue of Providence as well. Um, oh. and what does Lovecraft do with, uh, what does Moore do with Lovecraft story? He takes the woman character who's very peripheral. There's like three characters in the story, right? Uh, she she's a uh, Herrero is her name. Um, he makes her uh, Moore makes her the lover of this dead corpse, oh, but wow. she knows it, and yeah. he stays alive for love, not because he's a, some magician. Uh, that's, right? that's sweet. He it's totally <laughs> awesome because he reverses this horror right of oh my god he's been dead for years oh he's been dead for years but. We love each other. Yeah, he's hot. <laughs> he's been dead for years. But no, no, boy, don't make he, him hot. Boy, is he hot. <laughs> yeah. Don't make him hot. Oh, that's true. Huh? Not like that. He's, oh, that's uh, so cool. Is that better? That's why, that's why I think if you read a lot of Lovecraft, you will really love Providence. And if you don't, they'll just, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Yeah, and because he really does take it to strange places. Like with the, um, the issue six that you sent through to us. So in that one... Azaneth basically makes Dan rape her young teenage body, right? Is that today? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, she's raping her own body, right? Oh, uh, yeah, she right. She into Robert Black, who's a gay man, and then he's, you know, thrusting into him, oh, which yeah. is bizarre. And he's like, no, don't do it. I don't want this. Right. And, of course, that's, you know, that's. It's, it's classic rape, but it's 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 so inverted that it's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> you inverted and looking at it through a mirror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this and stuff gets crazy. <laughs> it's incredibly, incredibly uh, disturbing, mm-hmm. and and rightly so, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. That's what, see. That's what's wrong with this. The story is that you've got uh, the the father Ephraim is a monster. If if he uses his power for good, you know, we have uh, a lot of trans people really happy because no surgery is required. They get to have, you know, whatever. It's all consensual. It's all cool. Sex is fine as long as it's consensual. But once, you know, you occupy somebody's mind and use their, your adult body to rape a child, it's like, this is monstrous, right? Yeah, and not even and just she's not even a girl, really, right? Yeah. This is... It's so it's it's incredibly disturbing, and it's not even just the sex as well because he's um you know he basically he takes over his own child's body and like <laughs> basically like rapes his own child through her mind or yeah. you know and just leaves her to suffer. And you know, making them both suffer basically. Yeah. yeah. There's one word. There's one word. You, this word is. I was wondering if it was used in there, and then I did find it. It is in there. There's a word. I, I have a, a list of uh, what I call monsters in human form, basically vocab words, right, that mm-hmm. students need to use in writing poems about, you know, sleeping in graveyards or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the monsters that I've had on there, nobody, uh, almost nobody ever picks it because it's so uncommon, is Lich, 
L-I-C-H, which you, is... You, you obviously don't have any D&D players. Well, that's right. I don't. Uh, but a lich is a an evil wizard that uses magic to keep keep alive. Right. Typically, they're depicted with uh, basically a flowing cape uh, and a skull head. Yeah. yeah I mean, they're, they're classic high-level D&D undead creature, one of the most fearsome ones you can find because they're not only undead, they're also magic users. Oh, boy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and Edward... That's how he describes uh, the father. I oh, think. Does he? Yeah, he says he calls him a lich. Just with one line. It actually comes from like I think ancient Scottish or something, meaning just corpse. Yeah. But uh, you know, through Dungeons and Dragons and through Lovecraft, um, it has come to mean uh, evil wizard who uses magic to stay alive past his prime. And, and, this is and, a, and use soul magic at that because they, because liches have soul gems. They can, yeah. Right. Phylacteries, so, the whole bit. Yeah, they think, I mean, Gygax stole it all from Lovecraft, basically. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and other others as yeah. well. But um, uh, in fact, I think a lot of it is Clark Ashton Smith. But yeah. Um, typically, uh, they also have, they have a, like a little object about which they carry a sort of their magic. I can't remember the term for it, but there's a the phylactery. Hip- that's like that's phylactery. Okay, yeah. so on the Wikipedia entry, it, m- it mentions it. Um, and I was thinking, well, that's one thing this story doesn't have. But actually, in rereading it, um, do you remember uh, Edward says to uh, Dan, uh, "You don't believe me. Um, you think I'm going crazy." If I'm going crazy, then explain this. And he pulls out one of these objects that Asenath has brought back from her uh, mind-swapping voyages uh, in, you know, the underground main 6,000 steps Shagath pit. Um, <laughs> and hands Dan an object which has sides that are, yeah, non-Euclidean, yep. right? Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, well, that's, that's kind of what's going on. Right, that these sort of objects that are magical gems, or uh, you know, like John D. Have you guys heard of John D? Yeah, the 16th century magician advisor to Elizabeth I. Yeah, right. He's got like a he's got a, a scrying stone. Like it's a it's basically a, what looks like a hand mirror with it's just black. Huh. Right. It's like ooh, you can see the future. You can see the present. You can see the it, yeah. Right. The, the, the idea of having these, these objects, uh, the, the, the magic is somehow channeled through. Well, if you do it in a sort of naturalistic scientific version where the spells are actually, you know, just opening certain gateways through, you know, quantum physics, right, that we don't quite understand yet. We can't we haven't labeled that way. Mm-hmm. Then this story has it all. Hmm. It's a keystone story. Would you would you call those uh, fetishes? Do you think uh, something like that? Right. I mean, that's not how they these New Englanders refer to it. But um, I would say somebody's got to think of it that way. And some, you know, if if this was a Bayou story, they would. If this was uh, the Call of Cthulhu, right? Mm -hmm. They would. Yeah, for sure. So. I dig it. I dig this story a lot. Yeah, me too. I thought it was really good. And I, I still think it would make a, a great high-budget movie. Somebody ought to do that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think so. I think Wayne 
Um, I, I listened to the, your version like two or three times this week. I listened to the audio drama. And what's so amazing about Lovecraft is it's word magic, right? It does the job with the words. And so, I mean, I think unless you go with, you know, the sort of a comedic version or, or you know, uh, a nice adaptation, I think that the reason the HPLA, HPLHS, uh, the audio dramas that I sent you guys, yeah. um, that's the definitive adaptation. But the definitive way of hearing the story is to listen to Wayne June tell it. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. because it is it – is, you know, it is amazing to hear the voice invoke, but essentially are pages from the Necronomicon um, and cast this spell on you. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, not to make this into a Wayne June love fest, but we will, but it's just like, <laughs> but, oh, but, but, come on. But, but, but like, like, like the game Darkest Dungeon, which has a minimalist palette and dark imagery, but it's your voice and your narration that really brings those images to it, life. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the, the film. I have an image in my head when I hear the story. That's the greatest movie there is, right? Mm-hmm. That's why the Lovecraft doesn't work as well on film. Yeah, I, I agree because uh, it's uh, it's it's all about <clears throat> um, atmosphere. Uh, but I, I think um, I, I think it could be done by the. Uh, <clears throat> the right, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the right producer or director. Uh, well, like when I heard Guillermo del Toro was going to do, um, what was that? Uh, at the mountains of madness. At, at right, the yeah. mountains of madness. Yeah. I was, I was disappointed uh, thinking, uh, well, you know, uh, that, that kind of scenery and that, that impacted, uh, uh, atmosphere was pretty much taken care of in, in the, the modern version of the thing, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? And so what are you going to add to that? So, you know, uh, um, megalithic, uh, architecture and giant penguins, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm scared now. I, you know, he, <laughs> I, 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 I think, uh, uh, I think Guillermo del Toro, uh, could, could, could do Lovecraft as Lovecraft, uh, heard it in his mind or saw it in his mind. Uh, it would certainly be a challenge, and no one has has risen to it yet. Uh, I'll tell you, Lovecraft. That's one thing. When he died, apparently, is is that he thought of himself as a failure because he failed to live up to the vision that he saw in his dreams. Right, the the things that he saw that he tried to transfer to paper, he didn't think it was good enough. So, if Lovecraft, really? who the man who more than anyone can transfer this stuff to paper. <sighs> I can't do it. I don't think anybody can. And I, I mean, I'm all for people trying. I love adaptations of Lovecraft because it does allow you to. I mean, I think uh, there's so so even the bad ones are good because they are dealing with interesting themes. This is this is what's so cool about Lovecraft is that he never ever not even, like Philip K. Dick. He went for mainstream books. Wants to be you know. He never wavered, Lovecraft. He never wavered from the idea that um, the only thing interesting is interesting things. Never, it's never about personal relationships and whether they're gonna get divorced because the children don't love them anymore. <laughs> whatever it is, who cares about that stupid, you know, Henry James style uh, sitting room drama when you can 
leave the sitting room with a gun in hand to go shoot your friend through the head six times because it's the only thing he wants you to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, I, I think uh, uh, inherent in Lovecraft is uh, is a challenge. Uh, and I think that's kind of it, it's it's genius. I'm, I wonder if it was intended, but uh, you know how a, uh, his his typical core thing is that uh, it's uh, this is something that cannot be described, and then he goes on to try and describe it, <laughs> and <laughs> you, you, using also you know all sorts of vocabulary that's 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 alien sounding and uh, it sets the atmosphere with it, but. The second a reader or a listener uh, hears that, bang, what does your imagination do? It's like, don't think of elephants. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it inherently challenges you to use your imagination and to, to participate in trying to picture that which cannot be pictured. And it, it, I think it's just genius. It, he's, he's so genius on every level. I. I, I want to just point out one of the little things that us like, oh, that's an interesting word. This is the, like if you just put in a half the effort to look at just any particular paragraph, you're going to see something. Um, so one of the things that came up a couple of times is the name of the house that uh, Asenath bought in Arkham. Um, it's the Crown and Shield house. Yep. And forces uh, uh, Edward to move out of his derby mansion uh, into the Crown and Shield house. And the Crown and Shield is is a, Crown and Shield's a famous name in that uh, region of uh, New England. It's in famous New England name, a real family. Now Arkham's not a real town, but there would be Crown and Shield houses all over New England. They're famous in shipping, uh, or at least sailing, and um, perhaps whaling and government, military, right? So Lovecraft, of course, big devotee of the area, would happily throw in a famous name uh, for, you know, family name. He's done that in other stories with other character names. Sure. But Crown and Shield, who bought that house? Asenath. To shield her crown. Ah. Right? <laughs> it's like, get away from her father. To block out, block your head, yeah, right. There's a line in, there's a, a number of lines like when they're on the way back from, from a main, and Asenath wordlessly tells uh, uh, Dan that I'm driving, <laughs> um, which I think is pretty. I don't know how you do that, but <laughs> apparently you're you're getting out of the car and I'm driving. <laughs> uh, they switch positions, right? And when, like, they switch is one of the things that happens. But even more so, you know, yeah, my seatmate, right? Oh, Baffling yeah. alienage has filled my conscious. Yeah, I do not recall just what my own part of the conversation was, for the baffling alienage of my seatmate filled all my consciousness. <gasps> wow. It's like, duh, that's right. So he's telegraphing it, right? He's telegraphing it. Yep. But we don't see it because we're just caught in the spell that's what he's so good at like you it's like an emotional kind of response that he gets out of you and you don't even know why exactly, yeah, exactly. like until you really think about it like it is the it is that exactly what's happening is he literally um you know he uses the word dispel right there was talk of an investigation but that was dispelled one day when asenath appeared in the streets and chatted in a sprightly way with a large number of acquaintances well that's her 
proving, right, that it's not... Uh, she knows what's going on, so she goes out there and she dispels the... Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Edward is in... Uh, Edward is in the um, uh, sanitarium, uh, Dan checks on... Uh, sort of makes arrangements for the butler to go over to the crown and shield house once a week uh, to dust and they turn the furnace on, right? Because, uh, you know, both places are owned by Dan, right? Right. Uh, Sorry, by Edward. But um, there's a line in there. um, If he comes out of the prison uh, or out of the sanitarium, there's a line in there saying, uh, he will need a place to go. And I'm like, well, rereading it, of course. He's, his mind will need a place to go once Asenath... Oh! Yeah. And where does it go? It goes to the Crown and Shield house, where his body is. It, it, even He even goes to mention, like, um, on those days, they will turn the furnace on. Right? And, of course, the furnace is in the basement. The cellar that he had been so wandering around down in and it's like damn <laughs> this guy's a genius <laughs> layers on layers on layers and that's what makes the spell so great right is it's it's it, this isn't half-assed this is and what's so amazing is you know he doesn't do like 50 revisions he sits down he writes it you can see when he's writing these stories he crosses the occasional word out but he doesn't do like 50 revisions on it that's insane isn't it? Yeah, like it just it, feels so revised and so polished. Like every line, and, yeah, every line with so many meanings. How do you do that just in one thing? It's like he's he's occupied by a 17th century This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. That's not an ethnic slur, is it, Paul? No. Okay. Hunky dory? (laughs) Hunky dory. You know, hunky is like um, Hungarian. I I think it actually is an ethnic slur. Well, (laughs) hunky hunky lives matter, Jesse. That's oh. right. Hun- hunkies are Hungarians. Huh. Um, there used to be like, uh, in the 70s, there was like food products like pierogies that were hunky brand or something like that. Hunky dory. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm getting triggered right now. My Hungarian ancestry is... <laughs> blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. no. Hun- hunky dory is, uh, is Anglo-Saxon. Is it? Yeah. It's Ango Slacks and Sir for a slur. No, no, it's not a slur. It's a punk. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's not an ethnic slur of any kind. So, it's ancient. So. Uh, yeah. Oh, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it should be one. Okay. Oh, well. Um, all right. So, everybody ready? Yes. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, recorder's going. And we're going to do a show on the thing on the doorstep. I'm just going to bring up a Wikipedia entry on that because I'm sure I will forget something. Uh, Wikipedia thing. 
on the doorstep. 